What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's early December 1996. Police in Alvechurch in the West Midlands region of England are roping off a small section of the road outside of a house called Keeper's Cottage. They're combing the area for anything to help them solve the murder of 25-year-old Lee Harvey, a bus driver and single father. Harvey was brutally stabbed to death on the side of the road December 1st. The primary witness, Harvey's fiancé, says a stranger killed him in a road rage incident. After they'd left the pub and Lee was driving, that they'd become involved in a, in a road rage incident, um, essentially, that a man in a dark Ford Sierra, there'd been some kind of altercation, and he'd started following them. And Tracy did look like a victim. Um, she had the injuries to her face. She looked incredibly distressed, incredibly upset. But the physical evidence and other witness statements aren't consistent with her story. And he said, we saw no car that fits any description of what you've been told, and there certainly wasn't any car chasing that car in the vicinity of Cooper's Hill. So we'd got the confirmation that we were looking for that the road rage incident had not occurred. And so that changed the way that we looked at the investigation. The woman held a press conference only days before, pleading for the killer to come forward. She garnered the sympathy of the public and the press. But now, it looks as though the press conference was a ruse. Suspicious, the forensics team has the woman's clothes tested, and they discover some damning evidence inside her shoe. The forensic scientist who had examined one of Tracy's uh, zip-up boots. She had a pair of ankle boots on. And within that, he'd found a mark in the leather, which had a rounded top on it, uh, and seemed to bear all the impression of the outside shape of the knife. And that's the uh, hypothesis that she carried the knife away from the scene in her boot, uh, and that as soon as she got to the hospital, she was able to dispose of it. Her story really was starting to crumble at that point in time, and I think the police decided that's enough evidence. We can now move in and arrest her. There was no car chase. There was no stranger. Tracy Andrews stabbed her own fiancé to death and was trying to get away with murder. This is a woman of cunning, of deceit, and with a vicious temper. That is prolonged ferocity. That's going on and on and on and on. That's not a momentary flash of anger. That's uncontrollable rage lasting a significant period of time. It's a shocking, shocking thought. And the fact that a woman has done it. This is What Makes a Killer a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Tracy Andrews.
Tracy Andrews was born on April 9, 1969, in the West Midlands of England. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Andrews grew up surrounded by an extended family. Well, Tracy was brought up just outside Birmingham in Redditch and Alvechurch, and she was the, the middle child. She had an older sibling and a younger sibling and several half-siblings. And her parents broke up when she was around about six years old because they'd had quite a, a volatile relationship. The separation of her parents at such a young age likely influenced the young Andrews. Well, Tracy's parents split up and her mother got married to another man. And when we look at our parents' relationships, they are quite important because they inform our expectations of other people, our expectations of the relationships that we go on to have. Author and former psychologist Chris Carter says it especially shaped her approach to men. And a lot of kids that come from those kind of, of broken homes, and the case of Tracy, they want to be loved by mother, father, or somebody. So that is definitely, in my opinion, one of the things that, that pushed her into always wanting the attention of other men. Andrews had her first serious relationship at age 17. The two stayed together for almost four years and had a daughter together. But almost a year after their daughter was born, Andrews walked out on her partner. What we've got here is a woman who doesn't like her partners having a life that doesn't involve her. She doesn't like her partners going out without her. She gets very jealous. She's very possessive. And Andrews was rarely without a date. She easily attracted the attention of men. She had long, blonde hair and light eyes, was carefully made up, and was always dressed stylishly. As a young girl... She talked about dreams of becoming a model. But, says journalist Rod Chater, that dream never became a reality. She had visions, she had dreams of becoming a model, but, uh, and, you know, she was very photogenic. She looked good on camera, um, and she knew it, and she had some, some pictures uh, taken and a, a photo album put together, but that never really took off either. She once modeled for a local salon, but the dream went no further. At age 25, Andrews was living in public housing in Alvechurch and working in a pub. The bar gave her ample opportunity to be noticed. She still uh, loved talking to men and, and chatting to men. Again, seeking the attention that she wanted to get as a model, because obviously when you're that pretty and, and you're a model, you, all, you do get a lot of attention. Living nearby was 23-year-old Lee Harvey. Harvey was a handsome young man with a round face, large brown eyes, and curly hair. Like Andrews, he had a young daughter from a previous relationship. Lee Harvey was a young man from a very close family, um, and he worked as a bus driver for um, West Midlands Travel. So this was a job that involved you know, meeting many people on a, a daily basis. He was, uh, he was very outgoing. Um, he was interested in, in cars and, and was always very well turned out. So he was your, your typical young Birmingham lad, essentially, very close to his mum, very close to his sister. Their paths would cross in October 1994. Harvey and Andrews met at a nightclub in Birmingham and were immediately enamored with each other. The relationship took off instantly. They had moved in with one another only around three months into the relationship, so, so this was going very, very fast. 
being young single parents wasn't the only thing the two had in common. And their relationship was quite a volatile one. Um, they were both quite, quite possessive, quite jealous um, when it came to the other's uh, relationships with the opposite sex. And you often find this in relationships that develop very quickly. You haven't got that foundation of trust that's been built. You're always a little bit kind of suspicious as to what the other person's up to because you don't really know them. Journalist Rod Chater says their temperament was known around the neighborhood. And they would row and they would fight like cat and dog. And neighbors would report how voices would be raised at all hours of the day and night and would go on and on for hours and then stop and then start again. After six months, to the surprise of their families, the couple got engaged. But their relationship continued to be rocky. They would often break up, only to quickly reunite. This was familiar for Andrews, says former psychologist Chris Carter and journalist Jeffrey Wansel. It was a carbon copy of what Tracy grew up with in her house. She had a very explosive temper, and um, Lee Harvey also wouldn't like just bow down to her screaming, so he would scream back. She was forever throwing him out into the street and she would throw his clothes out of the window or in a black bin bag and chuck him out the front door, change the locks. And then they would have reconciliations. Lee would go back, more violence, Lee would leave, Lee would go back, more violence. This went on for a period of about two years. The constant fighting finally came to a head on December 1st, 1996. So they'd been rowing all day. Lee tended to be the peacemaker, and it was probably Lee's suggestion, why don't we go for a drink? Why don't we just get a change of scene, a breath of fresh air, let's get out of here, let's just go and you know, relax and have a drink. And, and that's what they did. The couple went out to the local pub to calm down and reconcile, but Lee Harvey would never return home. The only witness to his fate would be his fiancée, Tracy Andrews. And her version of events would soon make it one of the most talked-about murders of the decade. On December 1, 1996, 27-year-old Tracy Andrews and her fiancée, Lee Harvey, had gone for a drink in the West Midlands, not far from their home. The couple had been arguing all day and were trying to patch things up. The perpetual quarreling was nothing new. But this time, the night was about to take a deadly turn. Tracy claimed that after they'd left the pub and that Lee was driving, that they'd become involved in a, in a road rage incident, um, essentially, that a man in a dark Ford Sierra, there'd been some kind of altercation, and he'd started following them. Lee's car pulled over outside a house called Keeper's Cottage. A loud commotion in the road alerted one of the residents, who went outside to see what was going on. But the guy made his way down the, the little path to the road and there sees, uh, in poor light, uh, just shown by the security light, but there's a woman standing there with her back to the car. There's a, a body, prone body, on the, on, the, on the floor. He instantly runs back into the house, saying, call the police, call the police, call the, call the ambulance. It was a horrible scene. Lee Harvey, bloodied, 
was lying at the side of the road. It was clear that he was the victim of a savage and frenzied attack. This is a severe, sustained, brutal attack with a penknife. Now, the estimates of how many wounds Lee suffered vary. Some local reports said 42. What is clear, he was stabbed in the throat, back, front, repeatedly, viciously, and continuously. Here's forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton. To produce 42 stab wounds, it's a sustained assault. It's 42 movements of your hand. This is not something that you can do in a second or two seconds in a moment of madness. You have to keep going, and it is not easy. In Lee Harvey's case, the fatal stab wound was a stab wound to the crossed artery. That is, a large artery in the neck, and a stab wound to an artery of that size is going to cause very rapid, very heavy bleeding. Without prompt medical attention, it's most likely to be a fatal injury. 25-year-old Lee Harvey died at the scene. The attack became a murder, and the case was immediately given to Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston. I received a call from West Mercy Constabulary Operations Room. Uh, present at that time was uh, Lee's car, Lee's body, and Tracy Andrews was inside Keeper's Cottage, having been found in the road outside. I could see Lee's vehicle. It was pulled in on the near side of the road, travelling towards Alfchurch, and it didn't appear to have um, been stopped in any great hurry. It looked as though it had been fairly neatly parked to the side. Johnston read over the reports. Detectives at the scene had spoken to the primary witness, Harvey's fiance, Tracy Andrews. Andrews' story was that the two were driving back from the pub when another vehicle appeared behind them. Here's journalist Rod Chater. And she's suddenly aware that this car is behind, lights flashing right on their tail. Lee starts to accelerate. They're snaking together through the lanes. The, the other car then effectively draws Lee to a halt. Andrews later told detectives that a man got out of the car looking angry. Harvey did the same, and so a confrontation was inevitable. The driver then has said what he wants to say, apparently. He gets back in the car. Lee is still outside of his car. And then the passenger gets out. Andrews described the second person as a fat man with staring eyes. He moved in a way Andrews didn't quite see, but she knew that Harvey was under attack. Then she piles in, she says, to go to Lee's defence, because she says she's not the kind of girl to just sit there and see her, her man being attacked, at which point she gets smacked by the fat man in the eyes and repeatedly gets up and is knocked down. And then she says it all gets a bit hazy from that point, and then she kind of comes to almost and, uh, and Lee's there and he's covered in blood and she's cradling him and uh, it all goes very vague. With an initial statement taken, a bruised and bloodied Tracy Andrews was whisked away in an ambulance. And uh, she's treated for those injuries and for shock in hospital and cared for and tended for while police launch a massive murder hunt for whoever has done this, this terrible thing to Lee. Tracy had told us that the vehicle, which had uh, 
followed them from the Marlbrook, was a dark-coloured Ford Sierra, F-registered, and obviously we started a, a vehicle inquiry with the DVLA for the uh, owner details of any vehicle that might fit that description. Reports of the apparent road rage murder reached news desks across the country, and journalists, like Rod Chater, immediately headed to the West Midlands. Just the idea of, of a road rage murder made it already a big story. Um, and as the first morning progressed, everything we discovered made it a bigger story. Photographs began to emerge of Tracy. She looked an attractive young woman. Pho photographs began to emerge of Lee, the victim. Handsome young man. And so more and more of the elements that make a big story young, attractive, bizarre, unimaginable circumstances all started slotting into, into place. And things would become even more bizarre when Andrews spoke at a press conference two days later and her story began to change. Twenty-five-year-old Lee Harvey was killed in an apparent vicious road rage attack. Detectives knew that the best way to try and find the killer was through the media. A press conference was arranged for Tuesday, December 3rd, two days after the murder. Detective Ian Johnston appealed to Tracy Andrews, Harvey's fiancé, and the only witness to the attack. I met Tracy somewhere around about 10 a.m., I believe, just before we were going to do the press conference. I asked her if she was content to do the press conference, if it was something that she wanted to do. She said that she was. She said she really wanted to do it. As the press conference began, journalist Rod Chater says all the focus was on the 27-year-old woman. This hugely hiked up the media interest because we were going to have put in front of us, it was said, the key witness and someone, we'd all seen the pictures by this time, an attractive blonde, and she was going to sit there in front of us and answer our questions. The sound of the cameras going off as Andrews entered the room was almost deafening. The press saw Andrews' headshots from her modeling days. The woman who appeared before them, however, was somewhat different. Here was um, a woman, red-eyed, haggard, uh, completely unmade up, two black eyes cut on her nose. And Tracy did look like a victim. Um, she had the injuries to her face. She looked incredibly distressed, incredibly upset. But Andrews did seem very comfortable when faced with all the camera flashes. She easily answered all the questions from the journalists. Tracy said that the other car appeared to be playing a game of cat and mouse with their car before overtaking them. She told Lee to ignore them and drive on, but he wouldn't. She said, when you get behind the wheel of a car, sometimes you change personality. During the press conference, when talking about the alleged killer, uh, there was a moment when suddenly her eyes came up and she was mostly downcast throughout the press conference but her eyes came up and they flashed fiercely and her mouth dropped open a bit with that famous slightly jutting draw and she looked really angry and at that point again 
all the motor drives went off. Every press photographer reacted to that. It was a crash of noise as every camera was, was, was hit. In the photo of Andrew speaking to the press, she appeared tired. Her usually neat blonde hair was wild, and she was dead-eyed and open-mouthed as she described the assailant. He was large, had starey eyes, and, quote, didn't seem normal. And suddenly she starts appealing to the driver of the car, saying, you're not in any trouble, you know, come forward and tell the police what it's all about. Andrews was convincing as she pleaded with the car's driver to come forward with any information. And while she started the conference confidently, as the questioning progressed, she seemed to contradict her original statements, especially when journalist Rod Chater pressed Andrews about the timing of the events. I said, Tracy, sorry, but I, I, I clearly understood the police to say that it was about 10 past 10 when you left the pub. And she kind of looked at me, sort of head down under her lashes and said, no, it was 10 to 10. And sat on her left was Superintendent Johnston. And I just saw him react to that answer from Tracy. And very slowly, his head turned to the right. And he just looked at her in a kind of assessing way, a kind of appraising way. And at that moment, I thought, wow, there's something going on here. Andrews claimed they left the pub around 9.45, but the emergency call hadn't come in for another hour. The moment of confusion in Andrews' otherwise straightforward testimony surprised the majority of reporters in the room. The press conference finished, uh, and... The national newspaper journalists gathered outside in a bit of a pack, uh, as, as we would tend to do, all friends all know each other, work against each other. And somebody said, what do you think? And I said, I think she did it. And we all kind of looked at each other and thought, this, you know, this enormous story just got 10 times bigger again if, if, she, if she is the killer. Was Andrews lying all along? As police combed the road for evidence, what they found suggested that there was no road rage incident after all, and Andrews would go from the only witness to the only suspect. On December 3, 1996, Tracy Andrews appeared at an emotionally charged press conference. It was an appeal to find the passenger of a Ford Sierra who she claimed had stabbed her fiancé, Lee Harvey, to death. But as police picked apart the crime scene, they would find a different story than the one Andrews was peddling. Andrews claimed that she and Lee were the victims of a road rage incident. But no one could back up her story. A witness came forward from Keeper's Cottage, the house near which Harvey had died. And that witness's statement contradicted Andrew's version. It was December, the, uh, the windows were closed, but she could clearly hear a row going on. What she remembered was that one was a distinctly male, baritone voice. 
The other voice was much softer, and uh, she said it was much more like a woman's voice. Forensics experts also scrutinized the scene. The police completely sealed it off while they drafted in officers to carry out a fingertip search of the area. What they found, we later discovered, were a couple of bits and pieces, including a tiny spring and another element from a multifunction uh, penknife. What police didn't find uh, was any trace of a car overtaking another car on the soft December winter verges of this pretty narrow road. Police found a black beanie hat in the hedge next to where Lee's car was parked. Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston thought it might have belonged to the killer and sent it for a DNA review. His suspicions were correct. So her assumption was, well, this has maybe fallen out of the uh, assailant's pocket and he's not realized it. So of course, um, that went to the laboratory fairly quickly with a view towards DNA and uh, from hair samples, that sort of thing. And um, we have the report back by the Wednesday that this was animal hair and it was cat hair, black and white cat hair. Well, there's a black and white cat at Tracy's. And so we went down and took a sample of hair from the cat and it was the cat hair. And then, as I understand it later on, it was accepted that this was Lee's hat but had been in Tracy's pocket prior to the uh, offence taking place. The hat was just part of the growing evidence that pointed to Andrews. When the pathologist's report came back from Harvey's body, they found a chunk of her hair still clutched in his hand. In Lee's hand, they found between 80 and 100 strands of a Tracy's hair that have been pulled from Tracy's head. If Lee had been murdered by this, this fat man with staring eyes, why would he have Tracy's hair in his hand? Well, the pathologist's evidence was that this was more than just a, a, a death grasp stroking, that it was a reasonable clump, that it had a good pull. So it came as a sort of, as Lee was passing away, he'd pulled some hair from her head. It was looking more and more likely that Andrews killed Lee in a fit of rage. She certainly had a temper. Everybody who knew her said she had a temper. And when she lost her temper, everybody knew about it. She would shout at the top of her voice. The whole street would hear. Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Andrews decided to kill her fiancé very suddenly. When we talk about premeditated murder, we tend to assume that it's something that's days, weeks or months in the planning. But actually, premeditation only needs to take seconds. Um, You only need to have a few seconds to decide that you are going to end somebody's life. And, And she made that decision on this evening. And, Dr. Yardley continued, after she realized what she had done, she had to think quickly. It's self-preservation. That's what's driving her behaviour at this point in time. Um, She's got absolutely no empathy whatsoever for Lee or for Lee's family, or indeed for her own family, who are also going to be really badly affected by this. So she's thinking, how do I best preserve myself? I'm going to take that role of the victim and I'm going to put myself in it. Detectives got their biggest piece of evidence yet when two witnesses came forward thanks to the press conference they saw Lee's distinctive white Ford Escort on the night of his murder. 
Detective Superintendent Ian Johnston recalled their statements. Two witnesses who said, we've seen it in the local paper. I know I've seen this white car. We were driving from Alfchurch in the opposite direction. We came through uh, Cooper's Hill, past Keeper's Cottage. We came down the hill. And as we, as we came to the junction at the bottom, I saw this car go past. And he said, it's a white Escort G-Reg, spoked wheels, everything that it was. And he said, that, you know, there is no doubt that was the car. He said, and from that point to when we got into Bromsgrove, we saw no car that fits any description of what you've been told. And there certainly wasn't any car chasing that car in the vicinity of Cooper's Hill. So we'd got the confirmation that we were looking for that the road rage incident had not occurred. And so that changed the way that we looked at the investigation. But Andrews, perhaps feeling guilty or perhaps evading arrest, took matters into her own hands. On Wednesday, December 4th, the day after the telltale press conference, she overdosed on pills. Tracy takes an overdose, and I think this is a, a very deliberate, a very determined act on her part. I think she was absolutely set on ending her own life because over the past few days, the situation has spiralled completely out of her control. She's trying to keep a story together. She's trying to present this face as the victim, and it's all getting a bit too much because it's starting to unravel. So I think this is an attempt to take back control, to say, actually... I'm going to decide to do something now that I'm fully in control of, and, and that's what this was. Her story really was starting to crumble at that point in time, and combined with her suicide attempt, I think the police decided that's enough evidence. We can now move in and arrest her. On Saturday, December 7th, 1996, six days after Lee's murder, authorities arrested Tracy Andrews in the hospital while police guarded her bedside. The evidence from the two witnesses who'd seen Lee Harvey's vehicle uh, through the junction that night was e extremely impactive. And um, realistically, uh, without a, a following vehicle, without a dark-coloured Ford Sierra chasing that car, then the whole being of that explanation from Tracy just didn't stand up. Police found further evidence to convict, and that was the nail in the coffin. Forensics tested Andrew's clothes from the night of the murder. They were covered in blood, which was consistent with her story. But they found something else in one of her shoes. The forensic scientist who had examined one of Tracy's uh, zip-up boots, she had a pair of ankle boots on, and within that he'd found a mark in the leather which had a rounded top on it uh, and seemed to bear all the impression of the outside shape of the knife. And that's the uh, hypothesis that she carried the knife away from the scene in her boot, uh, and that as soon as she got to the hospital, she was able to dispose of it. She could have easily just like thrown the, the knife into the, into the grass or into the, the forest, whatever it was, um, and hope the police wouldn't find. But she even thought, no, they, these guys are gonna bring dogs, they're gonna you know, search the whole area, they will probably find something. Tracy Andrews was officially charged with the murder of Lee Harvey on December 19, 1996. Her trial was set for July, and she planned to plead not guilty. 
Andrews was sticking to her story that a stranger in a white car killed her fiancé. And the prosecution would have to prove that she was a liar or she could walk away free. On July 1, 1997, the trial of Tracy Andrews began. The media attention surrounding Andrews and the trial was enormous, says journalist Rod Chater. I was at the trial every day at Birmingham Crown Court. Uh, it was compelling, unmissable, and was being widely reported in all the media every day and every evening on all the TV news bulletins. The prosecution team, led by David Krigman, was confident they had a strong case against Andrews. They had the two witness statements that contradicted her story. But it was the pattern of blood spatter on her sweater that was key. She was covered in blood, which she claimed had come onto her clothing when she was comforting him as he died, as she held him in the road. But a lot of this blood was sprayed blood. It was arterial blood that had come out of the carotid in a fountain and sprayed like a waterfall down the front of her clothing. Here's forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton. In a lot of cases of stabbing, particularly to the chest or the abdomen, a lot of the bleeding is internal because the large organs and blood vessels are deep within the body. The carotid artery is very close to the surface, so if it's breached, it will spray blood under pressure from the heart out of that wound, out into the air, and it will land on things next to it, in particular, in this case, Tracy Andrews, the assailant. The evidence piled up against her, but Andrews previously proved to be extremely convincing under intense scrutiny she was able to give a good performance under pressure. I thought she'd done it. I thought she was the killer. But bearing in mind uh, how she'd handled the press conference a couple of days after the murder, I, I thought that she stood a good chance of getting away with it. But as ever, as is always the case, everything would hinge on the cross-examination of Tracy in the witness box, should she choose to give evidence, once the defense began. On Monday, July 14th, Tracy Andrews finally took the stand to give her testimony. There was genuine apprehension in the prosecution camp that a jury may be persuaded by not only the story, but the skill, I would say, the skill with which she was able to advance what she had to say. Tracy stood in the witness box now and gave her account, which largely followed the account that she'd been giving to the police all along through her through her statements, the road rage story, the, the chase through the lanes and the, the stabbing and the road rage attack. And she gave it calmly and, in some senses, convincingly. Andrews was steadfast in her story at first, just like at the press conference. But when pressed, her story began to change. And so, the cross-examination would be a chance for prosecutors to crack her veneer of lies. And it went on and on and on. It went on for hours. It not only took the whole of that afternoon, it took the whole of the next day and into a third day. And in that time, the highly intellectual David Krugman 
just took her story apart. He just deconstructed it her, around her. She was left there effectively naked in the middle of her story in shreds on the floor. I came to the view that the only way you could dissect her story was piece by little piece by little piece, detail by detail. It was the accumulation of a large number of details where she could be shown not to be telling the truth that could break her down. It was only within the finest of detail as one mounted on top of the next that you began to see the story it was a pack of lies. And she was, was reduced to standing there saying, I don't know, I can't remember, I don't know, I can't remember. And at every point, her credibility diminished. And at that point, I thought, OK, I think she's going to get found guilty. Andrews claimed her innocence until the bitter end. On July 29th, the jury reached a verdict. We kind of went our separate ways and ended up a few feet from each other in court. Uh, and the judge came in, everyone stood up. Um, the foreman of the jury, will you please stand? Uh, do you have a verdict on which you are all agreed? Uh, yes, we do. What is that verdict? Guilty. Andrews didn't seem surprised by the verdict. The judge said he had no option but to send her to prison for life. She showed almost no emotion. She sh shook her head once, but that was the only reaction. And she was then led down the steps from the dock into the, the cell area below. She saw her family briefly before she was taken away. They were allowed brief access to her. At that point, she did break down in tears. At that time, she was completely tearful um, uh, and terrified about what was going to happen to her and what awaited her in prison from other inmates. In public, she had maintained her composure to the last, really. In private, um, she was terrified. Judge Mr. Justice Brockley sentenced Tracy Andrews to life in prison for the murder of Lee Harvey. She was ordered to serve a minimum of 14 years. Forensic psychologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley theorizes why Andrews might have done such a thing in the first place. Well, when we asked the question, why do we think Tracy Andrews stabbed Lee Harvey? It was because she felt that Lee was hers. He was her possession. This wasn't a relationship that was about love. It was a relationship that was about control and ownership. And in ending somebody's life, you are completely possessing them. And that was what was going on on that evening when she chose to take Lee's life. It took a long time for Andrews to comment on the incident, even with all the evidence against her. On the day of the sentencing, journalist Rod Chater had a chance to interview her. And there was Tracy, uh, sat there, made up, composed, sat at a table, her lawyers, and I sat down and, and interviewed her. It was absolutely bizarre. The basic message that she was giving was, uh, I didn't do it, I'm innocent, and I'll love him till the day I, I die. And that was, that was the, the message from the exclusive Mirror interview that I did. In April 1999, Andrews finally admitted that she invented the road rage story. 
But author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel said she still maintained some semblance of innocence. 21 months after her conviction, in a letter to her solicitor, Tracy Andrews confessed for the first time that she had indeed killed Lee Harvey, but that it was entirely in self-defence. Now, how she could maintain that, given that he had stab wounds in his back and he was bigger than she was, I find that very difficult to believe. But nevertheless, that's what she insisted. In July 2011, after serving 14 years, authorities released Tracy Andrews back into society. Her hair was darkened. She'd changed her appearance. Since her release almost 10 years ago, she slowly reacclimated back into a somewhat routine life, including creating new relationships and friendships. I think it is absolutely possible for Tracy Andrews to live a normal life. Um, I think if she's come to terms with her offence, if she's addressed those underlying behavioural traits and characteristics, if she's prepared to just keep her head down and, and get on with her life, then, then yes, very much she can do that. And I think she should appreciate that the fact that she's able to do that because murder casts a long shadow and that there are many people who have been affected by this crime, who continue to be affected by it. But she has the opportunity now to ensure that she doesn't cause any more harm to people and that she can make a contribution to society. It's been more than two decades since Tracy Andrews took away the life of her fiancé in a brutal and vicious attack. And though her fiancé is long gone, the pain she caused Lee Harvey's mother, sisters, and daughter is something that won't disappear. She was ordered not to go within 25 miles of Lee Harvey's family. It's often described as a crime of passion, and I tend not to use that term because... I think what we're implying there is that she wasn't in control of her actions. She didn't know what she was doing. This, this rage came over her and she couldn't help herself. I think she knew exactly what she was doing. When you stab somebody 42 times, you are deciding to continue doing this. Your arm is going to be tired. There are going to be opportunities for you to stop and you decide to keep going. That is prolonged ferocity. That's going on and on and on and on. That's not a momentary flash of anger. That's uncontrollable rage lasting a significant period of time. It's a shocking, shocking thought. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, please leave us a review. We appreciate it. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer...
In Scotland in the 1980s, Dennis Nilsson was cruising the underground gay scene for companionship. But he preferred his companions to be subdued, to put it mildly. He would clean it, dry it, dress it, put it comfortably in a chair. He would speak to the corpse in the chair. These were his pretend friends. Over the course of five years, Nielsen killed at least 12 men and boys, some even right outside his own house. And he got away with it for so long because he flushed them out of existence. And they found what looked like bits of flesh. Nielsen suggested that could be somebody had flushed their Kentucky Fried Chicken out or something like that, and that would be the explanation for little bones and flesh. 